Today we come to the topic of language. The last few are very practical kind of capstones that the report tries to do. And the reason is, having studied all this very carefully and technically like we, we like to do in the church and then even more so in Presbyterian churches, we like to have all our definitions understood and we're really careful about that. In fact, last week when I talked about identity, largely what I was talking about is let's think as accurately about all these topics as we can and then use the right words for it. Well, this lesson reminds us of something. We've got to just pause. I think I really enjoy this, the fact that the, the writers of this report added this because a realization that we have to confess to is that language changes all the time as far as what people mean by words in the, on the practical level. It's true in the academy level, things can be held to a higher scrutiny as far as words and definitions. Even in the church, it's important for us to be careful about words and definitions, no doubt. Talking among believers, you're in this class, I expect you all to think with a little more precision on how you're going through this. But the reality is we interact with people all the time um, outside of the church, even people who are Christians who haven't um, had occasion to study it in this depth, and we should be very patient with the lingo someone uses and don't jump all over them because they may use lingo that we discovered in our Sunday school class isn't the best way to describe it. So this is a very practical lesson on holding to what is true, but then also recognizing we have to have some patience and gentleness about its application with our brothers and sisters in Christ in dealing with the world around us. Not as a way to compromise to the world, but just recognize we don't always mean the same thing when we say certain words. So it's a call to pause the momentum of, of our study just long enough to realize we're gonna have to be patient with where people are on this because it's, it's a topic that's just thrust upon us. A lot of it's new to us. Let's pray and then we'll dig in. I have some intro material and then we'll get right into the, the statement itself that you should have on the handout. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask again for your mercy and for your grace, for your Holy Spirit's help in uh, going through this, these uh, various statements that we have been going through so far and now the one that we have before us concerning the language we use, or the speech we use, or the way we describe things, words, definitions, things like this. Pray that all of us would um, become more clear in what we understand the Bible to be teaching and what is true, but at the same time patient and gentle about it, the application of these things um, in our relationships around us. In Jesus' name, amen. One way in which I think I can really describe for you, um, I think will help describe for you what I mean by language being so, so tricky sometimes when we're talking with people. When people say gay, for instance, um, we really talked about what you know, that specifically actually means, and that's fine. It, but not everybody means that when they say that, so that's why we have to understand this. Uh, about a month or two ago, an article came out in Newsweek, which I don't usually give you know, much credit for being just a high-level uh, publication as such, but uh, they were citing something from a Barna study, which I usually do give quite a bit of credence to, the Barna polls and studies. And in this Newsweek article, I think it was in October, it started talking about something. It was kind of shocking to me because for years, if you would do a, a, an in-depth poll on how people describe their sexuality, you would always get about a 5% or less of the population say they were homosexual, male or female or homosexual. But language has morphed so much in the last really 10 years, 20 years, even more so, but the last 10 years, it's this rapid pace, like, like on a level we've not seen uh, before, really since some, like back when the printing press came out and you had the German Bible written, some of the most, uh, the morphing of language was most obvious right after that because now everyone had a book that they could read commonly and the German language became 
kind of solidified around that. Well, something's happened culturally where you have that happening in this realm. Now listen to a little bit of what the article says and I'll talk to you about why I think language makes a difference and just for Christians to be you know, wise about how they say what they say and also a bit chill on when we hear stuff to not jump on it um, immediately. It says in this article from Newsweek, 30% of millennials, that's people that are born between um, 1984 and 2004, that proximate uh, time frame, give or take. 30% of millennials identify as LGBTQ. 30% as LGBTQ. Now keep listening. According to a soon-to-be-released study that is based on scientific polling data. Anyways, uh, among Christians, the numbers were lower, but only slightly with just under 30% of millennial Christians identifying as LGBTQ. The portion of the population that describes itself as gay has varied over the years, from 10% based on research by Kinsey, um, and widely promoted by the National Gay Task Force, to less than 6% in a recent Gallup poll. Wait, a recent Gallup poll says less than 6%, but 30% of millennials are saying that they identify with, and I want to be clear, LGBTQ. Okay. Um, the pollster who worked on this new study, George Barna, attributed the unusually high number he found to social and news media coverage that makes it safe and cool for young Americans to identify as LGBTQ. Now, the question wasn't, are you homosexual? LGBTQ, do you identify here? And so, to show that our language problem is, a lot of us will immediately say, I can't believe that many people are saying they're gay. That's not what it said. So they identified as LGBTQ. See, our language immediately, we think, a lot of Christians think LGBTQ just means gay. No, not, that's not the way the world describes it necessarily. And so what a millennial might be answering through their lens of language would be different. I'm not saying this is good news. I'm just saying it's not the exact news we might think it is when we hear it. Um, Barna says, therefore, uh, or excuse me, I'll go back. It's a subset of a larger issue that this generation where three, or four, three out of four are searching for meaning. This is a group that doesn't have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. That's a description of the millennials, all due respect to you millennials in the house. You got out of bed and you're here, so I know that doesn't count for you. Um, I used to diss millennials a lot more until I realized they are absolutely going to be ruling the world here pretty soon, so don't diss the millennial generation. It says that, Barna said, therefore, the LGBTQ identity gives them comfort. A lot of this generation claim to be moving in that direction, but there's a big difference between claiming the identity and living the lifestyle. That's, that's, the, the, this becomes different. The poll looked at so-called millennials defined as someone from 1984 to 2002. Sorry if I said 2004. Which is about 78 million individuals representing a quarter of the U.S. population. Among millennials, 30% identify as LGBTQ, more than three times that of the rest of the adult population. And when the researchers broke out the youngest of the group, ages 18 to 24, some call Generation Z, they found 39% call themselves, 39% call themselves LGBTQ. BTQ. Now, most of us in the Gen X, like I am, and, and older, you boomers, and even a few in the great generation left, um, you, don't, you don't even know what LGBTQ stands for. You couldn't even say what they all are. And uh, you just, you don't care, or you know it means something that you don't agree. Like, being honest, that's where a lot of people, that is completely not the way uh, millennials and lower think of it. They know what the terms mean and why they, why they keep adding another letter. Um, this is all very culturally driven. But I, I'm saying this to show, to you that, show you that what we use as lingo does not necessarily translate the same way to everybody who's hearing it. Um, Barna produced a 124-page study in conjunction with a cultural research center at Arizona Christian University and Foundations of Freedom, a nonprofit entity that promotes traditional American values. Uh, the results differed uh, significantly from a February Gallup poll that showed 5.6% uh, adults that are not heterosexual or straight. So it's a different question. Are you heterosexual or straight? or 
uh, and 95% say yes in, in that Gallup poll, but when you ask, are you LGBTQ, 30% of the millennials, 39% of the Gen Z, and Gen Z will soon have its own identity. They'll break away from millennials. It just takes a little while for that sociologically to be observed, um, but you'll see it. And if you have children, uh, your kids, you know, like my age kids are not really millennials. I mean, I have, I have ones that are 22 and lower, um, AJ would probably be the most that would like dip into that, but anyone that's born after the Oberfall decision in America is going to be a different generation. If you always grew up thinking that gay marriage was something fully accepted and celebrated, then you're probably, you're going to be someone who's 15 or younger. So 15 and younger has grown up in that world. They only know, they're not going to be count, counted with millennials. Uh, there'll be, a, I don't know what it'll be, but Gen Z is what they're calling, and then there's another one under that. Those of you who know that stuff better could give more specifics, but I'm, I'm talking in generalities. Um, Barna says, it fits into the larger narrative. Millennials are a group that has trouble creating lasting, meaningful relationships. If their sense is that some of the people they want to be friends with and a group that they want to be accepted by is LGBTQ, then they'll identify with them. It's about image, belonging, and acceptance. And I think this is an accurate way of describing how people would answer this when you ask them, are they LGBTQ? Um, I was looking up like the Q, for instance. So if you identify as LGBTQ, but you're saying you're not homosexual, um, I started looking up what would definitions from the LGBTQ community say Q means. And so I looked up Q because if you think about it, if you're a young person, you're confused, you don't have a biblical sexual ethic, or you haven't learned it in family, or it's all fluid, it's not that you're saying you're lesbian or gay, but you're saying, or bisexual for that matter, but you don't want to be identified as any of it. And that's what the, the Q is for queer. And, um, with that, that acronym really has some meaning that's important. Uh, it says this person who's describing themselves as queer. It's very interesting. For example, I refer to being queer. Myself, I refer to being part of the greater LGBTQ community. I personally identify as a lesbian, but I also identify with the community as a whole. On the flip side, however, there are many people in the LGBTQ community who choose the word queer over the established labels emerging like pansexual, demisexual, and others. Still, others do not use queer for themselves at all. With all that in mind, it's clear that there's a lot to unpack in those five letters. Simply, queer signifies that someone is not straight or cisgender. Uh, it's not any of it. Queer allows you to connect with the LGBT community without having to pick a box, and on and on and on. It's a social, it's a social uh, grouping of acceptability about it without direct statement about what I'm doing. It's not what you think necessarily, but that's what someone who hears a lingo thinks, and that's how they respond if you give them, if you ask them, do a poll with this. So I noticed some of the comments that responded, some people that were actually pro-LGBT community, but one person said, you know, the problem with this poll is it, it goes against the LGBT community's message that gender and sexuality are the way we're born. Um, it, it, goes, it, it says here that it's based on their choice of joining a community. It's, it's really a, a decision they're making or thinking about, and I'm going to place myself in this community. So it kind of goes against what had been uh, the argument for a long time that, that this is how you were born or designed and identify this, and you should identify it the way you're born. Um, in other words, would there be such genetic drift in, the, in one generation to have this big of a percentage all of a sudden um, identify in this way? Well, the, the words and the definitions mean different things anymore, so it's very difficult to... Um, pin down what is meant when someone says, says I'm LGBTQ. Um, 
It's a status marker to some degree in today's culture. It, they, they, people don't want to be seen as non-progressive, as not understanding or with the world. They don't want to be, so they identify with that community rather than not. If they say they're not, then they'll be, then you're anti or you're homophobic or whatever it may be, you're transphobic, whatever the wording might be used. And that, that's why it's so difficult to talk in any nuanced sense, any middle ground sense, because the generations have different exposures to language and what it means and experiences that puts them in a different place of understanding it. Um, there's lots of different examples I could use, and I was going to use one, but for time's sake, I'll, I'll save it. Uh, just to say that uh, I don't think this is a matter of where um, Christians will sometimes compromise language to make the culture happy with us. I just think there's just a lot of confusion in the church and between groups that are trying to talk about, about um, different things. Um, I had the, the example. Uh, do you all remember um, Princess Bride? where Inigo Montoya, I know you do, and Vizzini, the mastermind Sicilian crime lord. Why is there always the mastermind Sicilian's got to be crime lords? But at any rate, um, he keeps saying inconceivable over and over again. And finally, Inigo says, I don't think that this word that you're using means what you think it means. And I think that's a lot of what we got going on. And I would just, I would just ex extend to all of us in the church, you know, patience about when you hear. And what I'm setting this up for is what I think the statement is. It's important to be precise and hold to principles and be careful about them. But it's also important not to freak out if you hear someone even in the church, a young person using that lingo to describe themselves or describe someone else. The correction has to happen in context of the church for sure, but recognize the world and the, the meaning of, of things um, have a lot to do with how a person use, you know, also then uses the words. We have to try to understand that a little bit without violating any biblical principles that we've been going through. So let's look at the statement and I'll say more as we go about this. I think you'll see the, the spirit of what is being said. Essentially, language should be accurate according to what the scripture teaches and how we understand it. At the same time, we've got to recognize language, words mean different things to different people yeah, as we try to minister. It says, we affirm that those in our churches would be wise to avoid the term gay Christian. Although the term gay may refer to more than being attracted to persons of the same sex, the term does not communicate less than that. For many people in our culture, to identify as gay suggests that one is engaged in homosexual practices. So from the Christian perspective, from the, the place of our church, as you're learning this and learn, it's unwise for us as believers to use that language to describe us. And I'll go back to last week as to why that's the case. If you weren't there la here last week, go back and listen to why identity is important scripturally and how we find our primary identity in, Christian, in, Christian, in, in Christ. Excuse me. We have many other identities that are legitimate, but um, we shouldn't identify ourselves as a sinful desire because that's what we've also come to understand uh, homosexuality is. It's, it's a sinful desire among other sinful desires. We wouldn't name ourselves by any of those. So it's unwise for a Christian who's trying to promote the truth of God's word, wants people to know Christ, want to believe in the Bible, to use that. It's unwise. It's not outright saying it's sinful because it kind of depends on, on some things, believe it or not, but it's it's something that would be unwise, and we'll see why that is uh, a bit more. At the very least, the term normally communicates the presence and approval of same-sex sexual attraction as morally neutral or morally praiseworthy. Um, because, you know, the word gay is most commonly, most people agree with this, if you say you're gay, that means you're attracted to someone of the same sex. And we're saying that the attraction itself is a sin that we have to repent of, not just something that we can't help. And so therefore, I mean, we may not be able to help in the sense it's part of sin. I'm not suggesting that anyone want, 
people have, un I have all sorts of unwanted desires, but they are my desires, and so therefore I have to claim them as such and repent of those. Um, so that's why we shouldn't use the term, because it, it doesn't denote, teach someone, it doesn't tell someone else that you're inactive in this. And here's the thing, even to say uh, you're, you're living out the gay lifestyle, what does that exactly mean? Because what we think in our minds and what we, what we um, dream about or, or fantasize about, those things are, are real sins too. We all have to battle them. Heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter what it is. We're always battling that because of who we are as sinful human beings. But it's just confusing to use a sinful desire to label ourselves. So we just really should avoid that um, in, in, for the reasons that we have kind of laid out. It, it just, what it communicates, especially in the context of fellow believers, it's true that the older generation needs to try to learn the younger generation and what they're, they're understanding. I would say to young people too, though, it is your responsibility to care what the older generation thinks too. It goes both ways. It's not just older people should think like younger people think. It should be younger people should appreciate older people. Because, oh, by the way, the older people got old for a reason. They learned some things along the way. You know, we always say... Um, you know, whenever we're hunting, I always try to hunt old bucks. I don't like shooting young ones. That's why you'll see me for, my wife doesn't understand this, but you went out again, didn't shoot anything? I said, well, I saw stuff, but there was nothing old enough. I want to shoot one that's three or four years old or five would be better. Six would be awesome. The problem with seeing a six-year-old deer is they got to be six because they're really smart. That's the point. They didn't get that old being dumb. And so young people, you know, the gray hair, bald, pot bellies that we all have now, that, that, you know, we earned that. I mean, that, that's something that came to us by working through this life. So there's things that can, we can help you with and you can help us with both ways, right? And so I think that this is important when we're using language. And now I'm primarily talking among Christians in the church as we're working out our own salvation and fear and trembling as we are on the road to, to sanctification. So have this discussion, but recognize what this term gay, gay Christian especially, suggests. Um, one of the debates in our denomination, too, is really on another level altogether. It's, it's the, the bigger debate in our denomination is about, isn't about um, this use among church members. It's really about, uh, you know, should ordained pastors and elders use this language? And I would say a lot more forcefully, no, you should not, because our role is to be teachers of the truth. We have to walk a little bit differently in how we use our lingo because of the mantle we have, like it or not. Um, and that's a really hot debate in the PCA now is, is, uh, is how elders refer to themselves and, and such. But this is still true and applicable for every Christian. Continuing on, even if gay for some Christians simply means same-sex attraction, um, it is still inappropriate to juxtapose this sinful desire or any other sinful desire as an identity marker alongside our identity as new creations in Christ. Uh, back to what we already covered. This is where it comes down like practically. When you're in a small group, say you have some friends that are, are type believers with you, and you could be really honest with them about all the things you struggle with. Um, it could be anything from, you know, any self-control, you, you struggle with telling the truth, with um, covetousness. Um, it could be something, something uh, alcohol could be some substance. And so you, you need other believers to talk that out with them. And be honest with them. Like, I just, I don't have the self-control you have, I don't understand. Because for me, I can't have that drink, or at least other drinks. Or, or I can't go into a certain restaurant where you can eat all you can eat because I just can't, don't have self-control. Like, that's an issue I have. And you can talk clearly with someone. You're not saying this is who I am, am through and through. And so you're just being honest about the sins that you deal with. And all of us, I hope, have people in our life that hold us accountable like this. Our spouses to some degree, but men with men, women with women, helping each other with some issues. So it might be appropriate in a private situation as you're dealing with a few believers to share it. I have this 
this sexual struggle, whatever it may be. It could be same-sex attraction. It could be a, a porn issue. It could be how? What, what's the reason? So we can hold each other accountable to flee from that sin, to mortify. It's not, not a support group like, yeah, yeah, I am too. I am too. Oh, me too. That's not the point of that. The point is for accountability to put that off, have help people, have people help you put it off, and put on Christ. Okay, so... So in that context, it's not as though you can't use some, that kind of lingo to describe what you're dealing with. But that's an altogether different thing for me getting up publicly and expressing. It wouldn't be appropriate for me um, as a fellow believer, let alone a pastor, to, to just say publicly to a bunch of people, this is, the, this is my specific thing that's really personal, real sensitive, and real difficult. You'd have no control over how that's understood or who you might be harming and hearing. We just speak differently when we're in that sense or when we're displaying ourselves in that way. All this is not saying you shouldn't be honest with your sin and be able to admit these things, but it's just the context that you do it in is an issue. It can be an issue for your effectiveness and for other people around you. So the language we use, um, predominantly we want to avoid using these kinds of labels for ourselves, calling ourselves a gay Christian in this context because this is the, the, the study we're studying. Now, this leads us to the second half, and this is the part that I think is careful to help all of us, um, you know, let, you know, it's tense when you talk about this topic a little bit, I think, because of the, because, you know, I fully, ex- I mean, you know, like, this is on, uh, this is on the internet. Like, I mean, it's only a matter of time before I'm, a, you know, your pastor is going to get outed as a bigot and all the things it's going to, I mean, it's absolutely coming um, for sure, you know, because everything I'm saying is so counterculture and so homophobic, according to the way people talk about it, that there's no way I could defend against that in the court of public opinion in five to ten years. So, so I realize there's a tension, even when I'm saying some of you are worried about me. When, you know, I, you've told me, you're like, oh, that's real brave. It's not brave. This is just what it says. But I do know it could end, you know, end me in some trouble. Fine. But uh, the point being is there's tension when we talk about this. So we kind of have to let out, you know, exhale a little bit when we come to this section and, and get the sense of the, the spirit that it's written in. I think you'll understand. Let's look at it says, okay, in light of all that we've come to, we've really been mounting to a point of real carefulness, precision, importance about how we describe things. What does the Bible say? Claiming sin when it's sin. Then it says, nevertheless, we recognize that some Christians may use the term gay in an effort to be more readily understood by non-Christians. The word gay is common in our culture, and we do not think it wise for churches to police every use of them. Now, you may say, well, I don't see a reason. That's just compromising. Well, no, I'm not talking about compromising. I'm just saying that getting off square one to someone who's completely unchurched about this topic, it's going to be difficult to use the kinds of categories we're using. At least in starting the discussion, there might have to be some usage of the word and label this way. It probably wouldn't happen most people for most people um, dealing with this, but there are some people... Um, that they'll that, that this is going to be this is used in certain contexts and a lot of it's private context like I just described but we have to recognize um, that policing every time we hear it like just getting upset and jumping to it and going correcting the person isn't the best approach um, over the long haul we'd want to work towards that but not in the short term I don't think is 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 a is a wise way to handle it the word gay is common in our culture that's the next statement. And we do not think it wise for churches to police every use of the term. Um, it's good to p- be precise and careful internally in the context of the church, like we've been talking. But we have to be understanding if someone comes into our midst or we are out there in the world and some, somewhere out in the world we hear a fellow Christian use the terminology, I wouldn't overreact until we hear out the fullness of what's being described. 
Um, the word gay is so common today, and there's uh, really, I'd say there's no good reason to get immediately triggered over that. Okay, just, we just kind of relax a little bit about this uh, at first. Um, we're trying to dissect things in the class, but we also don't want to produce a Phariseeism where we're just looking for, you know, shibboleth words. You know, this word's been used, and so now I'm going to jump on it. That's not going to help us be effective. Um, precision within, I get, but let's be mindful that people come from varying backgrounds when they talk about this. Here's a way I like to describe it in, in uh, Reformed and Calvinistic churches, especially if you're newer to, the, to this tradition because I hear this all the time from people. And this is true if you go into a charismatic church and you've never been part of one, or you go into a Methodist, you know, it's true if you cross into a different tradition, you'll notice something that seems to be, you know, really a hot button for them. But this is the way I would describe it. Um, when someone has been Reformed for a while, Calvinistic in their understanding, they're used to using language of when I came to trust Christ. They'll use very precise language, or I believed on Christ. Or when did you come to know Christ? And, you know, I believe that he's, we talk in those terms. Or we might even say, we might, you know, who is Jesus Christ to you is what we ask when you become a member. Because it's not that we don't care when you first profess faith, but, you know, who is Jesus to you right now is the most important question, not when did you trust Jesus. Um, and so I believe Jesus is my Savior. He died for my sins. And we use that lingo. And then you, you start to realize, wow, that's, that's a powerful way to say it because it draws you to a present, uh, a constant present renewal in your faith in Christ. But, You'll often hear in our culture, someone will say, they'll, they'll come in our church and they'll say, I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart when I was 12. And you'll see seven or eight caged Dave Calvinists Calvinist perk up. What did they say? You didn't choose, what does that mean? You accepted Jesus into your heart? What does it say in the Bible? And you're a jerk about it. The person just said they believe in Jesus. Can you not listen to the exact specifics of it? Can you have some, pay, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I was exactly that jerk for many years. So uh, now I'm like, I'm less jerky. I just kind of like, well, uh, what? In time, we'll get that cleaned up, that link. No, no, no. But my point is, is like there's things that people say that they're not technically accurate, but we should not police those specific. We know what they mean. We know what they're saying. Let's, let's have grace. Let's be gracious. That's in the context of a, as a, lo a local church. But think that we even a little wider. Like when I hear a celebrity comes to Christ, and I, I do analyze the way they say it because it matters, but I don't, I don't jump to the conclusion, oh, they're absolutely saved now because they said they, they received Jesus into their heart or I accepted Christ as my Savior. I chose to change, you know, whatever the language is. I give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, they're talking positively about Christ. A person can't do that unless God's working in their heart. Now, they may prove not to really be a believer, but I don't get skeptical right out of the gate because they didn't say the definition just right. Does this make sense, what I'm talking about? Um, and so I would likewise, like, and you don't go to your family gatherings after you learn some of these theological truths and then bust open the Christmas celebration because people aren't saying doctrinal, they're not relaying things doctrinally accurately enough. I mean, if you are, you're kind of a jerk if you're doing that. I mean, you shouldn't do... Now, privately, you might say to Cousin Joe, hey, you know, what did you mean by this? And they have a discussion. But I'm saying, as Christians, this, this topic we should be patient with and gentle about how we interact and listen more than we talk to see what they really are saying. And then in time, if it's in the context of the church and someone comes into the church and they're learning, in time we'll talk it out and we're patient. And, and you, language does matter. It will matter. But it, up front, I think we should have grace first um, in, our, in how we're describing. Think about when your young children will say, and I don't mean to describe someone who is immature, but they may be in the faith. But when young children are describing something to you, especially like when I asked my daughter how her day went, and she's very excited about some issue that I cannot figure out why she's excited about. It didn't seem like a big deal, but it is to her. 
And so I just want to listen to this. I got to think of it and think from her perspective. Why would she think this interaction with this girl was so important or this? And it starts to make more sense to me because I'm thinking in terms of where she's at. No, I don't just leave it there. She's going to keep growing and relationally, if it's something that's immature because she's thinking too much of what the person thinks of her and said something hurt her, I'm thinking a strategy over time to help her, not just at that moment. Well, you're thinking wrong about this. And the reason why your feelings are hurt is because you're not, you're, you're, idolizing her view of your, that's real helpful to a 12-year-old girl, right? But this is, this is a little bit of what we can do if we're not patient with this topic. It's such a hot-button issue in the culture. I'm not saying compromise language to the culture. I'm just saying go slower about how we then engage. Listen more than talk, especially when you're talking to somebody new who you don't know very well. Your language is different. Does that make sense? I think this is what's being stressed here, and I really appreciate, appreciate, uh, this statement, the, the word gay is common in our culture, and we do not think it wise for churches to police every use of them. Our burden, and this is the statement then that brings us back to the importance of the practical application of this. Our burden is that we do not justify our sin struggles by affixing them to our identity as Christians. That's what we care about ultimately. Like in the context of the church, we just don't want to, um, we don't want to be justifying sin. That's the point. We, we can't do that. But it doesn't always mean they are when they're saying the lingo. So let's figure that out. And then, and then slowly but surely attack the issue uh, personally and corporately. If it is a matter of we're justifying a sin issue, that's a different thing. That, that's the issue. That's the real issue. Language can sometimes confuse because of the way it changes and the way it's used different in one group from another group. Again, our burden is that we do not justify our sin struggles by affixing them to our identity as Christians. Um, maybe a person is not actually doing that by using the label. The label is not wise, but you have to um, really, really talk it out. I have several friends. We have people in our church that, that have this struggle, and they'll talk about it's, it's a challenge for them because they, they navigate two worlds um, in, in the way people are using things. They want to correct. A lot of these folks want to correct what they hear too culturally, but it put, they're, they're in a tough spot because they're trying to deal through it. They're trying to put away the sin in their life and they're working towards it and they're really engaging in it. Same time, they're, they also feel for people who are caught in it and feel like they're being lied to. And so they're really in turmoil over it. They need a, a so sometimes in the lingo they may use, they're not describing um, a perpetual, they're still engaged you know, in this, but they're describing you know, the complexity of what their experience is like. And we just have to, we have to have patience with one another in, in that sense in the church, uh, and I feel like that's, that's really meant to be appreciated by the statement as a whole we're looking at, but then recognizing, just get to the main point in your mind, is you're, what are you trying to discover? Are we trying to justify our sin struggle by putting, identifying, or fixing them to our identity? Is that what's really happening here, or is this a case where the person hates this about them, and they're just, it's their way of trying to be honest about something to get it out of their life? Okay, that's a different, and a lot of people, that is kind of what they're saying by it. Appreciate, I'm really dealing with a terrible thing right now that's hard. Everyone's telling me it's okay out here. They're telling me it's in, I'm struggling with this. I want you to know I'm struggling with this. That's what someone's saying when they label themselves that way. They're not saying, hey, I'm proud it's this way, it's this way it is, da, da, da. It's not that all the time. It could be, might not be. Kind of depends. So that's the point, patience. Um, it says in this uh, final section, churches should be gentle, patient, and intentional with believers who call themselves gay Christians encouraging them as part of the process of sanctification, to leave behind identification language rooted in sinful desires, to live chaste lives, to refrain from entertain, or entering into temptation, and to mortify their, their sinful desires. That's ultimately the goal. Recognize we're all in a different place. Let's be patient with each other. Now, as it relates to elders, no. 
elders can't be in that position. Elders in the church can't, cannot be calling themselves in any fashion, way, shape, or form gay Christians. Never. But that's not the same thing that you, that you as a church elect to preach the word, lay hands on. You expect, you should hold them to that accountability. But it's not the same for, for people that are just coming into the church, coming to know Christ, they're in a place of maturing. They're not the same as far as where, what we expect. I mean, we all have struggles, but how we then, and I'm not saying a pastor can't have those struggles. I'm saying, though, they have to engage in those struggles the way we're describing, and that is to recognize it as sin, confess that sin, work, and work through mortifying it. You, the, pastors can struggle with this. Elders can struggle with this, too. That's not, I'm not saying they don't struggle with it, but they shouldn't identify themselves. They should know better based on what the Word says and how they're ultimately communicating it. So uh, I, think that's the, I think that's the key sticking point right now as far as PCA debates go. Um, but as far as people in the church go, um, I don't often say that it's, it's not the same for one or the other because I believe in the priesthood of all believers. But there is something about when you pick people to um, be your elders because you're supposed to submit to them. And of course, they work in a, in a company of elders, which is great safety from when one of us is, is wrong and then we all correct it by the others. But there, is, there, is a few, there are a few occasions when it comes to handling the word and the sacraments and um, in the corporate leader, leading of corporate worship, that there's just some areas of maturity they have to have. It is the end goal for all believers to, to use proper biblical language, but it's not realistic that we should expect people, very beginning believers, and as they're growing, or they come from different um, perspectives and angles and traditions, as they're growing, we should be patient with that. I just don't think there's the same patience should be shown towards elders in the church about this matter. That's what I'm saying. So, all this to summarize, I think, uh, comes down to this last statement that I'll read one more time before we close. Churches should be gentle, patient, and intentional with believers who call themselves gay Christians, encouraging them as part of the process of sanctification, as part of their growth and grace, to leave behind identification language rooted in sinful desires, to live chaste lives, to refrain from entering into temptation, and to mortify their sinful desires. One of the most uh, clearest ways that I've ever seen you know, sanctification play out, and especially it's been such a blessing to be here for 24 years. So I remember listening to, um, it could be even among the elders, I could say this true, but among many of you, I remember when I first met you and we would pray together, I would pray with you, uh, like some, you were sick or some, some reason I came and visited you and we would pray. And then, then I could say this about like 20 of you on the top of my head. Then maybe the next time we had another interaction, five years later, you were the one praying or we, I could hear you pray. Then five more years after that, I hear you pray, and it's a different kind of prayer. It's like, it's just, I can't describe it. I can tell you there's some maturity there. Some of the language you use, some of the concepts that you describe, even what you ask for seems to change. And then five more years later, 24 years later, to hear some, I like listening to you pray more than I ever want to pray myself in some respects. And I mean to say it, that over time in sanctification, one of the most obvious ways a person grows is by what they pray to God. They want to go to God, and you want to go to God saying, even when you pray privately right now, I promise you, you don't pray the same way now that you did 10 years ago. Because you've grown. You've, you've learned different ways to describe things. You know certain things they're not appropriate to ask for necessarily. God never despises his child who comes to something that they don't know. That he just wants you to come. But over the years, life and sanctification work, and you start to hone the language you use, and the, even the thoughts you have about God when you go to God. I think that that's the clearest indication of that sanctification process, the clarity of what you confess to God in prayer. But I also think that your regular lingo that you use, the way you describe things, that too morphs over time as you grow in Christ. And you'll, you'll learn to, people will learn to make their language more precise as they go. 
let's all be patient with that and everybody. It's just going to be different, different stages and places. And it's not your position, it's not even my position to go police that among people. To go, you know, to go and tell them, that's not exactly the right way you say it. Now, in some context where you want to flesh out, trying to find out what everyone's thinking, you're in a group Bible, you know, there's, there's context for that. But just in the general fellowship of the church, when we're having discussions, when questions are being asked, it's good for us to be very patient, especially about this lingo that we're talking about here because it's so tense out there. And the last thing is you want people in the church to come in and really feel open to say what they're feeling and thinking. You don't want them to come in feeling like, I can't bring this up here. Who, who's gonna, where are they going to get this clarity then? And I think it's very important pastorally and for our fellowship uh, to get, get this clear. And I think this statement does a good job language. So we have three more lessons, uh, uh, two more lessons after this, 11 and uh, 12. So I look forward to doing those with you start uh, next week, at least the, the next one, which I think is on friendship. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for this time. I pray that uh, the report here, the statement here will be helpful to my brothers and sisters insofar as it is in align with your word and the spirit of your word. Pray that where it is not, um, as I always ask, that you would just help us to forget whatever was said that's not according to your word, but rather take, in, take to our hearts the things that, that really do um, properly display the truth of your word. Pray that you give us patience with one another, gentleness with one another, really not just in this topic, Lord, as a family, church family, just across the board, that we'd be patient with each other um, as we learn more and more. Uh, we learn the language of your word, we learn the truth of your word, that it would, it would really flavor our speech, but we know this takes time, so give us patience with each other, just as you have shown us such great patience. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.